Okay, good morning. Just need a moment to get everything switched around and set up, and then I'll have to leave and go get my juggling balls. Um, apologize for if I go into a coughing fit this morning. Been battling a cold for about 10 days now and just won't go away. So if you see me drinking my tea or it's not candy, it's cough drops. So <clears throat> don't worry, but um, I'm thankful that God has given me the opportunity to declare his word to you again, and I'm thankful that he seems to have saved my voice enough for that, and maybe even given me a little raspy coolness, so it sounds <laughs> a little bit more forceful or enjoyable, at least. Um, we will be in Mark chapter 5 this morning. If you have a pew Bible, that is page 840, and the, hopefully there's one right there in front of you. If you need it, just turn to page 840. We're in Mark chapter 5, the story of Jesus healing the demon-possessed man there that's a famous kind of wild man who lives among the tombs. If you are visiting, um, I don't know if I, it's hard to see new faces from here, um, welcome and hope that uh, can learn something about God's word and his truth and the gospel and God's goodness to us through Jesus Christ. Um, <clears throat> let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer. Lord, uh, this is a, a very serious and solemn thing that I'm about to set out to do and that this congregation is about to do. Lord, we're about to try to listen to you speak to us through your word. And Lord, we each are bringing to the table different experiences, um, in some ways different convictions, different biases, um, different backgrounds that are going to color how we receive your word right now. And so we pray that you would um, communicate exactly the message that you would have to communicate to us this morning. I pray that my words would not be a reflection of only my personality and my brain um, analyzing this text and this story to figure out what's going on there, but I pray, Jesus, that the, the message that you wanted to communicate to your people through Mark would be communicated to us this morning. Help us to free ourselves of those biases and um, preconceived ideas and cultural baggage that we carry with us as we come to your word. I pray that there's somebody here, Lord, who doesn't know you, maybe who has grown up in this church or just walked in off the street or um, is a friend of someone in the church or a stranger, whoever they may be. I pray that if they don't know you, they would know you this morning, that you would make yourself known to them by the work of your spirit through your word proclaimed and preached. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We've had quite the week, right? As Wayne pointed out, um, last week Pastor Jeremy preached and he has sort of been trying to remind us to be present in our community, to be seeking out opportunities, um, to not just bring the gospel to people sort of... Um, Maybe in a traditional Baptist way, we think of going door-to-door -door and soul-winning, right? That's what they used to call it. Um, but in also helping to meet the needs of people, serving them. Um, again, of course, that's not enough. You know, we can go help people clean up their lawns as much as we want, and they could never hear the message of the gospel of Jesus, and they wouldn't necessarily be better off for it in that sense. But what we can do is get to know those people. If the opportunity arises, share the gospel with them as we're serving them. Um, but having contact with unbelievers outside of this room is very important. Um, the end of the gospel of Matthew, what did Jesus leave those believers with? Go and make disciples of all nations. Go out. This isn't 
everything about the Christian life isn't contained in these four walls or in this building. God has a much greater plan, a much greater scheme for how he wants to use us. And I apologize if I cough into the microphone. That's probably going to happen. You'll hear it loudly, but I can't avoid it. Um, I feel bad for the guy who's going to edit the sermon. That's me, but it's going to be a lot of work. Um, <clears throat> but I, as I was reading this test and or this text and thinking about what happened this week, Pastor Jeremy preached just last week on um, this very idea of serving our community and finding opportunities out there to be involved with. The parade was a good one, right? We were getting ready for the Verona Summer Fun Nights last Monday night, and that went very well. Very pleased with <clears throat> how our church um, talked to people, spoke with people. Um, I had conversations with some families that I hope will come to visit our church in the, in the near future. Um, it was a good thing. And then we all went home Monday night, and I was thinking, oh, Finally, th- today was such a long day, and get some rest. Then I got a text in the middle of the night. There's a tornado. I may need you to come to the church. Like, oh, it's so early in the morning. <laughs> Pastor Jeremy was here from 2 o'clock in the morning all through the next day. Because <coughs> when the tornado hit, Tom Vaughn was working the 911 call center, and he texted Pastor Jeremy, and Pastor Jeremy said, let's open up the church for anybody who needs it. So last Monday night was sort of this loose, unorganized, I don't know who's coming, I don't know when they're coming, I don't know what's happening, but we're just going to open our church, and anybody who needs to come can come. So we had families <clears throat> staying here that had been forced out of their homes, and it wasn't safe for them to go back to their homes. We had families come and stop Um, sort of in passing. You know, they were here just until they could find a hotel room. Rita uh, Martin, she came and cooked breakfast for people. Cindy and um, the Martin girls were here talking and serving and helping people. (coughs) Excuse me. Really doing exactly what Pastor Jeremy was asking us to do last week. And as I spoke about the tornado with my wife, Valerie, it was obvious that, you know, God is doing something here. Um, this loose sort of, our church is open, developed into Dave and Ann Maradiaga, went out in, their neighbor, in one of the neighborhoods in Madison, affected by um, the tornado there, and got names and phone numbers, and how can we help you? That, so that turned into our church helping people in specific neighborhoods, and it eventually turned into... Pastor Jeremy offering our church to be sort of the headquarters for volunteer efforts because for in our great insurance culture that we have, um, our police department and fire department can't tell people, yeah, just come help us because if something happens to them when they're raking leaves, like they stub their toe with a rake, they can sue the city of Verona for a million dollars. So now we're in charge of coordinating that effort. And like Wayne brought up, if you're interested in helping out, um, you can go to our Facebook page and there's a link to a website where you put your name in and you will get emails saying, these are the needs. You can respond and say, yes, I can go to this house at this time to pick up sticks or I have a chainsaw, I can cut up wood, whatever. Um, but now the police department is telling people, you need volunteers? Call Memorial Baptist Church in Verona. That's a pretty cool thing. But this all came about because of this terrible, powerful event, a tornado. Imagine you're asleep. All of a sudden, you hear the tornado sirens. Valerie and I slept through the ones that happened in our neighborhood. It wasn't 10 minutes later. 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes that these people had to get down into their basements before the tornado came. Could you imagine one couple said that they were hiding under their stairs, tons of noise and racket outside, and then when the calm came, they get out, they look up, and their roof is gone. 
That is power. That is scary power. One of the families that came here and stayed the night um, wanted to sleep in the basement here. You know, the, the tornadoes were past. Um, I don't know that there was another risk for more tornadoes at that time. But the mother, she just said, I just want to sleep in the basement. I, she, she saw that power. What it did, to, they had a tree come into their bedroom, basically. Um, she saw that power, and she responded accordingly. She respected that power. And really, that's what we have here in Mark's, the fifth chapter of Mark in the story of this man possessed by a demon. <coughs> we have the power of God displayed in delivering this man from an unclean spirit. Now, to sort of set the stage... Um, well, I'm going to go ahead and read through the, the first 20 verses, and then we'll, we'll kind of go walk through each sort of aspect of the scene and what's developing. Mark chapter 5 and verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar... He ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For, he was, for Jesus, he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So in these first few verses, we can see Mark sort of setting the stage for the story. And it's, it's very difficult to, to sort of, to preach out of a story is hard, right? Because it feels like there's so many things that you can take out of it to apply to your own life. Um, but, you know, this isn't a parable. Like Pastor Jeremy gave us principles for how to interpret a parable. But we're going to see in here some important things, lessons that we can learn from this story. And primarily, when you have an encounter with God, a life-changing, altering, life-altering encounter with God Most High, you have to respond with fear, and you have to respond with change. And I, I don't necessarily mean morally you have to respond as in, I'm telling you, God has done something in your life. Now you have to go out and tell everybody to believe in Jesus. 
I'm saying the natural result of that encounter with God is you want to do just that. You want to be with Jesus and you want to tell people about what he has done for you. So here Jesus is come, it's the night after they had been on um, around Capernaum, which is on the west, kind of northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, teaching. There's a great crowd there gathered around. And in the evening, Jesus says um, in chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 35, um, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So this big crowd, he's saying, um, okay, let's go to the other side of the lake. And this is the famous story of Jesus calming, calming the sea. And what does it say after the end of that? But Jesus says to them in verse 40, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In verse 41, The disciples were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? So imagine all night long you're in a storm. Jesus, you wake Jesus up. Don't you know we're going to die? You know, these are fishermen. They knew how to handle themselves on the sea. Don't you know we're going to die? Wake up. How are you sleeping? He calms the sea with a word, and they're scared to death. They get to the other side of the sea. They get off the boat, and what happens? This crazy man comes running, right? So imagine that you're on State Street, um, and you see, you know, down in the distance, the wildest-looking crazy homeless man that you've ever seen, unkempt hair, um, you know, just filthy, dirty, big beard. He's obviously yelling, and he's obviously running down the street towards you. You're, you're already kind of out of balance because of your encounter with Jesus calming the sea the night before. They step out of the boat, and verse 2, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. This man kind of running from a distance. What are you thinking as that happens? I know what I would be thinking. Is this guy going to attack me? Um, you know, add that on the top that he's probably naked, you know, which is, as Alex had an experience with the people on bikes yesterday, um, riding down the street. Imagine that that person is obviously crazy, running towards you. You're going to be scared again. <coughs> Excuse me. So, they're stepping out of, in a fearful state of mind, out of the boat, into a state of fear again. <clears throat> but we're going to see that that's not the kind of fear that God is going to use to change our hearts and change our lives. Um, but here we see Mark sort of sets the scene by describing the place, whereas Capernaum, on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, was a primarily Jewish place. Um, this area on the east side of the sea was called the Decapolis. There's sort of ten cities in this region that had been reclaimed by, by the general Pompey. It's kind of famous name in our you know, mythology, um, <clears throat> what we think about ancient history. Uh, but he had re-Hellenized the region, meaning um, he had reestablished idol worship, reestablished the Greek gods, reestablished the Greek way of life that Alexander had used to, when he conquered the whole world, that's the reason why Greek at the time of Jesus was so um, predominant as a trade language, it was because Alexander loved his Greece and he wanted to bring it everywhere. And so Pompey had done the same thing when he recaptured that area. And then when the Romans came in, not long before Jesus was born, that, that aspect of their life was still there. The Romans didn't come in and say, okay, now you have to be Jewish. Um, they just sort of let it stay the way it was. <clears throat> so this other side of the sea, the country of the Gerasenes, the Decapolis, it's called, was a primarily Gentile area, a place that wasn't necessarily Jewish. <clears throat> That's the, the scene. Now, the primary players in the story are Jesus and this man with an unclean spirit. And the description of the man is so sad. 
I'm going to read it again. This man, starting in verse 3, he lived among the tombs. Imagine somebody who lives in a cemetery. That is not a normal person. You're going to think that they're off balance. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. This means that they had been trying to bind this man for some time to keep him under control, and they couldn't do it. Now, I heard on NPR the story of a man, you're going to think that I'd only listen to NPR all the time, because I reference it in every message I preach. Um, The story of a man who was a biologist and he moved to the jungle in either Costa Rica or Belize to um, try to save jaguars or some kind of big cat that lives there. And he was trying to develop a system to trap them without hurting them so that he could tag them, research them, do all this stuff. And he said he remembered the first metal cage that he built because they, they would always get trapped and then break out. And he was shocked. How are they breaking out of this really strong wooden cage I've made, this trap. So he made one with rebar for the first time. You know, big, thick rebar you put in cement to reinforce it. And he said that he loved these jaguars, right? And it's the saddest day when he came to this site after he had laid this trap, and it was just covered in blood. Blood everywhere. And he knew this jaguar did not live. It lost so much blood. There were teeth all over around the trap. And what this animal had done, it had got trapped and was trying to get out so bad, it it broke the rebar off of the trap, but in so doing, its teeth all broke out and it bled to death. And he he followed it until he he found the animal. Imagine, this is what this man is doing when they're putting metal chains on him and shackles. He is fighting with everything he has to get out. He hates it. He can't be controlled. That is a sad, sad state of affairs. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he's wandering around crying out and bruising himself with stones. I have never met anybody who is in such a sad state as this man. This should move us to have pity on this man who is oppressed. He's hurting himself. He's crying out. He's in anguish. He's not in control of his, his own actions, his own body. But when Jesus encounters him, they step out of the boat. This man is coming from afar. The disciples are probably thinking, uh, this is a crazy man. He's going to jump on us, right? He's, gonna, he's not going to ask me for money. He's going to beat me up. Um, I get the sense, just reading it doesn't say that, that people had sort of started to avoid this area a little bit because of this man. Um, but this man comes up, and we see he's not coming to attack Jesus and the disciples and the people who were there. He's coming to bow down before Jesus, not out of reverence, but just out of recognition of Jesus' authority and power. He's, he's yelling as he comes up, not like crazy talk or I'm going to get you or get out of here. He's yelling, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. In verse 7. Because as he's coming, Jesus is saying in verse 8, we see, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus knows. You know, he's God, obviously. He knows This man is oppressed by an unclean spirit. He knows everything about this man before the man is obviously crazy and coming to him. And he's saying, come out of the man. Come out of the man. And the demons come. The man comes and get down and beg him. They say, what are you doing here? This phrase, what have you to do with me, Jesus, is used in other places with encounters with unclean spirits or demon-possessed people. And it's basically like saying, we are oil and water. Why are you trying to mix? Why are you bringing us together? We're like day, daytime and darkness. It doesn't work together. The demon recognizes that Jesus has absolute power and authority over him. 
And he says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Now, he recognizes, A, that it's Jesus without ever meeting him before. He recognizes that he is Son of the Most High God, um, which in the Old Testament, this Most High God is used to describe, um, sort of, to set apart the one true God from the pagan gods around. Like Melchizedek, um, when Abraham meets him, he is described as a priest of the Most High God. To, to say that he's not like, he's serving the one true God, not all the false gods around. And that's what this demon in this Gentile pagan area comes up and says to him. And now when Jesus asks, what is your name? He replies and says, my name is Legion, for we are many. We don't need to read too much into this and think, oh, it's the exact number of demons and spirits as a Roman legion had soldiers, but it's just describing the force of an army. A legion was the biggest unit in a Roman army. The force of that army is what was oppressing this man and keeping him in darkness. And knowing that Jesus has every right to punish, right? Could Jesus have taken this this demon-possessed man and told of the demons, I'm going to send you to hell right now. I'm going to destroy you right now. He could have. He had the authority. He had the power. I don't know why he didn't. That's part of kind of my moral, when I approach the story, I think, Jesus, why didn't you just destroy him? Don't let him free so they can go inhabit other people, go oppress other people. But Mark doesn't say why Jesus didn't do that. He just says that he kind of acquiesces. Not out of a, not, he's not compromising, but he has the ability to do that. He has the power, the authority to do as he wishes. And he says, basically, okay. You know, one, one commentary I read said, maybe one reason why G- these demons ask, they say, don't send us out of the country, was that... They were wanting to stay in that Roman, not, um, not uh, an influence of the truth in that area. And even we see that today in, in missions. When you're a missionary in a place like, like as a missionary in Spain and France, you don't see a lot of spiritual encounters like this. But if you are in a place where the gospel is not as established historically and with, with churches, you see a lot more stories of demon possession. And if you go to places in Africa, you'll hear missionaries talk a lot more frequently about demonic activity. And I'm not talking just about our um, charismatic or Pentecostal brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm talking about people who maybe have a penchant to deny that aspect of spirituality or saying, wow, there are people oppressed and possessed by demons here. Um, So that is maybe in play when they beg him um, and say, don't send us out of the country. Instead, send us to those pigs. Um, Another indication that this was a heavily Gentile area. Were, Were Jewish people allowed to be in a place where pigs were raised, they would be unclean. And we don't get the, the idea of clean and unclean, but they would have completely felt that all the implications of that. It would mean ceremonial cleansing and staying away from the temple and sacrifices for certain amounts of time. <coughs> but in this, this encounter, Jesus again sort of acquiesces, not out of weakness, But out of, he can because he's God. And what do the unclean spirits do to these pigs? They they enter the pigs, and Mark says it's about about 2,000 pigs, and they run like lemmings and run into the sea, and they all drown and die. Now, I I talked with Jerry Volanek a little bit last week, And he he has not quite 200 cows, I think, if I remember right. Um, In Wyoming, there are places with way more than that. Um, But this is a huge financial 
loss to these herdsmen. Huge, huge financial loss. And so we, we can see in their response, what were they thinking about? What were they thinking about when they're trying to see what just happened? What just happened? In my American capitalist mentality, I'm thinking, man, these guys need to complain and be like, Jesus, give me my money. You just cost me, because these aren't his followers, right, who just lost 2,000 pigs worth of money. These are just people who live there. Hey, I got nothing to do with this. I've been trying to stay away from this man, you know, avoid him for all these years, and here you bring my pigs into it, and you kill them all. Give me my money. I need reimbursement. I'm going to sue you. That's how I'm looking at it. But what is the response of these herdsmen? They flee. It says, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country what happened. They're not thinking, oh, man, I need to go get a cop to come make a report. They're thinking, what just happened? What well, the words that kind of came to my mouth are not good. So I'm, they're thinking, what just happened? We have to get out of here. And they run to the cities, to the country, and tell everybody what Jesus had done. And so people come to see this man. They come to see the, not only the demon-possessed man, but the man who freed him of the demon. And as they see him, imagine this is the naked, scary, homeless man who's crying out and hitting himself and cutting himself with stones for years that you can't subdue clothed, sitting down in his right mind, talking. So could you imagine, this is a guy, you're telling your kids, don't ever go near this place. You will be in danger if you do. And you go and you see him, and he's like, Dave, Mariaga, hey Dave, how's it going? I'm sorry about your pigs. You know, maybe I'll work, I'll work to help you pay for them. I don't know, that's what my American... That's what I want him to say. Um, or, you know, when they say, what, hap- what happened? He's like, well, you know, I was demon-possessed, and Jesus Christ came and, in his power and authority, freed me from these demons. Before, he was a wild man. All of a sudden, he's in his right mind. So the response of these herdsmen and the response of the crowds, be it the people who came to visit or um, the, the disciples that were with Jesus, because as he's crossing the, um, the Sea of Galilee in the storm, um, Mark records and says that there were other boats with him, so he didn't go just in one boat with the disciples. There were other people coming. These people respond with fear. Now, last night we were reading a story to our son Noah. And he has this little National Geographic for Kids book on storms. And because of the tornado, he's been wanting to read the, story, the part of it about tornadoes. And in the picture of a tornado, it's a tornado touching down, and there's dirt flying everywhere. So when I took him out to the, the you know, where we were doing the work in the neighborhood where the tornado touched down, he saw some post holes in the ground. And he keeps saying, oh, the tornado makes big holes in the ground. And he's seeing post holes that are maybe this big around, maybe, and maybe two feet deep, and thinking, wow, tornado, that's powerful. I couldn't do that with my little plastic shovel. Wow, that would take forever. And I took him around, and I showed him the house that was hit the hardest. And a large part of the house is on top of their car in their driveway. He, he doesn't get it. He doesn't put it together, the power of a tornado. And Valerie said, well, you know, Noah, if a tornado can destroy a whole house, do you think God is more powerful than a tornado? And of course, he knows the Sunday school answer, yes. But it is absolutely true. These the response of the herdsmen, of the crowds that were there, was fear. When they came to Jesus in verse 15 and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. 
And they're, out of their fear, knowing what Jesus is capable of, <clears throat> they began in verse 17 to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Please get out of here. We don't want any more trouble. You know, we're not scared at the financial loss. We're scared at the absolute power of this man. But the response in this encounter with the power of God, you know, the the crowds have this response of fear. Even the disciples, um, you know, judging from their response to the storm, I think Mark puts these stories together for a reason to teach us to fear God, to recognize just how awesome, and I mean that awesome and worthy of awe and awe-inspiring God really is and Jesus really is, was fear. But what was the response of this demon-possessed man who had been delivered? In verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, Jesus, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. What everybody else saw as um, we need to find a reason to get away from this guy because he can kill us. He did that to 2,000 pigs. What can he do to me? The man who had been freed says, Jesus, I want to be with you. I want to be one of your disciples. I want to go with you. I want to learn from you. It's a response of somebody who's been freed by the power of God. But Jesus says, um, no, you know, I'm guessing this is because this man is a Gentile and the, the Jews aren't ready for that yet. This is, even after the church is established, there are issues in the book of Galatians we see with Jew and Gentile problems. Um, they're not ready for this. It takes half the book of Acts just to get the leaders of the church to realize, ah, wait a second. So you mean, God, you want to save people? from When you said go to all the ends of the earth and make disciples, you really meant it? Um, but Jesus isn't at this point. And he says to the man, um, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And what does the man do? He does just that. He goes and he tells Everywhere in the Decapolis, he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So, I just want to sort of recap. What are all the things here before we move into what does this all mean for us? Because that's a question you should ask every week as you're sitting here is, you know, I always put it, you know, in to sort of just hyperbole or put it a little too strongly, who cares, right? And I don't mean, ah, whatever. I mean, why should I care about this? Um, but what are some of the things that Jesus had overcome and demonstrated his power? They're crossing the sea. They're, everybody's thinking we're going to die. This is the perfect storm kind of situation. Um, they wake Jesus up. Don't you know we're dying? And he, with a word, calms the sea. They're scared to death of the power of this man. He goes, being a Jew, to this unclean land, occupied by Romans, um, distinctly pagan. They're raising pigs. They're going to a place that's completely unclean. There are tombs there as a Jew. You couldn't touch a dead body. And the the rabbis after in Judaism had made rules about even going to tombs and stuff. Um, You know, not touching a dead body, but touching like the the tombstone would be our equivalent. You're unclean. He comes to this man with an unclean spirit who lives in the cemetery, is crying out day and night, can't be shackled. He's hurting himself. And Jesus overcomes all of this by his power and his compassion. So there's this like weird contradiction of it just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem, it seems so weird that Jesus would go to this Gentile area. He would go, it seems kind of backward. He, he had been telling people be quiet when he would heal them in Jewish regions. Don't go tell anybody that I just healed you, and now here he tells the man, go proclaim it, go tell everybody how much Jesus has done for you. 
Those who were with him were fearful. But the, the sea and this man who was demon-possessed, they were the obstacle sort of that Jesus had to overcome. They folded right away, and they sort of became Jesus' ally. Now, again, what does that mean for us? I can tell you... Um, Two people here who have encouraged me through hearing their salvation stories are Joe and Carly Coper. Um, not directly with Carly. Um, and don't worry, Carly, he didn't give me all the, the, the secret things. Um, he's not betraying your confidence. Um, but the, two people, like myself and my wife, um, well, Valerie grew up in the church, so it's not, she wasn't a Christian, though. Um, I didn't grow up in the church, Right? There was this time where God showed me his power. I had a dream, and in this dream, it was undeniable. God showed me that I was a sinner. I woke up. I never would have admitted that God existed before that. I never would have admitted that sin existed, let alone to say that I was a sinner. And I woke up knowing there is a God, and he is going to judge me. This encounter with God led to me seeking out how can I be right with God. It completely changed my life. My parents thought that I joined a cult when I became a Christian. My mom literally called and asked somebody she used to teach with at the high school and said, is your church a cult? This is, my son is weird. He went from being this certain way on one week and the next week, bye mom, I'm going to church. Um, But it changed me for Joe as I've talked to him, I encourage you to talk to him. Um, same thing. Why, you know, when you know the love of Jesus Christ, when you know the wickedness of your sin and how he has delivered you, you have to, you have to tell people about it. You have to. And again, I don't mean in the sense of obligation. When Jesus told this man who had had this encounter with the saving power of God, go and tell your friends Um, what God has done for you. This man didn't be like, okay, I guess I have to, but what do you want me to do after that? I'll do that, and then I'll make dinner. He did it gladly. Why? Because he had been delivered. He had gone from darkness to light. Like John Newton's story of going from being just a terrible man, slave trader, you know, the lowest of the low. And in his his later years, he was able to say, I know two things. I know that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. So having an encounter with God like this demon-possessed man, when you encounter Jesus Christ, it changes you. It changes the way you use your money. changes the money you use your time. It changes the way you look at family, your resources. Primarily, it comes from a healthy fear of God. God is actually awesome. And I, you know, this, I don't know if you guys realize it, but the fact that there were no injuries in the tornado that happened on Monday is amazing. In the same string of storms that was, you know, kind of throughout the Midwest, same storm system, I read headlines where people had died. When you go to that neighborhood and you see one house is normal except that it's splattered with insulation that it was wet and blown onto the outside of the house and you wouldn't think anything of it except for their neighbor's garage is in their backyard from one house to another no no real explanation as to why this house is destroyed this house is damaged this house has nothing no reason But imagine the power of that tornado where it hits. God's power is infinitely beyond that. We should look at this tornado and see, God, you are awesome. You are powerful, but you are way more powerful than this tornado. We should come with a a repentant heart to ask God to renew in us that desire to know his power that he would really be the most high God. Second, 
We should face a situation like that, and it should create a desire to be with God. In the same way that God is more powerful than, I'm going to use the tornado again because it's all fresh on our minds. Um, God is powerful enough to destroy. Is he not powerful enough to save, to protect? We should not look at the terrifying acts of God, whether it be in judging sinners or in natural disaster, and think, I need to get away from this God. We should think, I need to press into him. We should be like a little kid who gets scared when a stranger comes up and they grab their mom or dad's leg. They're thinking, nope, I'm going to get, like they say in French, under my mom's skirt. Or whatever, dress, pant leg. Safest place ever. I'm not leaving. I'm not going to look. That's not what God wants. He doesn't want us to, to fear those things. He wants us to fear him and draw near to him. That's what the demon-possessed man did, right? Everyone else was like, wow, God, I don't want anything to do with you because you are scary. Go away, Jesus. But this man said, I want to be with you. I've seen your power, and I have seen that it's a safe power, if that's a good way to say it. It's a power that not only can destroy, but it can save. It can renew. And lastly, when we have an encounter with God, this God that created the universe, this God who is infinitely more powerful than weather or sin or rebellious hearts, and he changes you, you become an ambassador for God. When God came to Abraham, what did he tell him? He said, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In 2 Corinthians 5, we read, we are ambassadors for Christ. As God has reconciled us in Christ, he is calling us to be ministers of reconciliation. As we have seen in every one of us, if you're a Christian here, you have had to come to a point where you saw your sin, you saw the hatred of God for sin, and you responded knowing Jesus' blood is the only thing I have. Um, It's the only thing I have. But when you have that reconciliation, you have a desire to go out and tell the world, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, be, we, um, we beg you, be reconciled to God. That should be our life. So as we've been talking about going out into our community, I've run a summer fun night, a nice little way to do that, safe way, really, to meet some people from our community. Um, we used the parade last week to go hand out flyers. Um, our church is involved in the, the, we're kind of spearheading the volunteer efforts for tornado cleanup. Um, these are good ways to get out in the community for people to realize we are here, but God is calling us to be He's calling us to be more than a landscaping crew. He is calling us to be going out into our workplace, not necessarily during work hours, but with your coworkers, getting to know them, sharing the gospel with them, sharing with them, like Amazing Grace says, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, and he could say, the same way that we should, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. We are called to recognize the power of God to fear him, to want to be with him, the safest place in the world, and to be his ambassadors to say, God has saved me. He wants to save you. He can save you. Believe in Jesus Christ. Okay, let's close in a word of prayer. 
Lord, we thank you for your mercy. And um, Lord, in, in theology, we talk about um, common grace and special grace. And um, there is a saving grace, Lord, that only your children know where we are delivered from sin. But there's this common grace where you let the, the rain fall on the fields of both the righteous and the wicked. You are putting up with so much sin in this world just in the, way, the same way, Jesus, that you, you didn't destroy those demons when they begged to be cast out of this gathering demoniac. You didn't destroy them, but you are waiting for the right time. You're waiting for the, the fullness of time when you will judge this world and it will not be pretty. It will be a terrifying and terrible day. And yet, Lord, now you are staying your hand, you're staying your wrath in allowing us and commanding us to take the message of salvation, the message of reconciliation of sinners and holy God through the blood of Jesus Christ to this dying world. And so we pray, Lord, that you would do that in our hearts. Lord, I confess that I do not have a righteous fear of you the way that I should. And Lord, we, this is not a black or white call to our congregation to either shape up or ship out but you are in your love telling us to each one to repent and come back to you, to repent of our self-sufficiency, of recognizing our own power, to recognizing your power. You are calling us to repent of fearing the powers of this world to fearing you. You are calling us to repent of our ingrownness, our sort of inbred mentality of just being happy, being with our friends, family, church family, and you are telling us, go, tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. And so I pray, God, that you would do that in my heart. I pray that you would do that in the hearts of every person here, Lord, that you would help us to go and make disciples of all nations, calling them to to go near to the most terrifying thing in all the universe, the God who created it all, the God who judges sin, knowing that if they approach you through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, they come not as enemy, but as child. Help us to draw near to you. And Lord, as we sing, all I have is Christ, I pray that we would be able to sing to you, hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. There is nothing else. We love you and we thank you for what you have done for us in saving us and calling us from darkness into light and from death to life. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.